Well, before I begin, let's pray together. Father God, we just uh, thank you for this day and thank you for your grace and your love for us. Um, God, may you open our hearts today uh, to receive your word. May our hearts uh, be good soil that receives the word and that the word goes deep in us and changes us and reorients us and sends us with even further clarity and passion to declare the good news of Jesus Christ um, here and uh, our local context and extending to the ends of the earth. We commit this time to you. May you be honored and glorified. And may all that we do and say bring you glory and independence on your spirit that guides us. We thank you when we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are back in Acts. We took a six-week, uh, we had a special series on our Handling Tough Questions series, which we just concluded last Sunday. And now we are back in the book of Acts, which has been our year-long series that we've been on all year. And uh, we're heading now into the last really major section of the book. And I wanted to do a little bit of just some review real quick, just to kind of catch us up to where we are. When we um, started the series, we talked about how Acts 1-8 kind of serves as kind of a map for the entire book. And if you remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says that uh, when the... um, Holy Spirit, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we've been seeing how after Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension back to be with the Father, he gives this command to the disciples uh, to wait until a time when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And at that point, they would have this calling now, that they would become the witnesses of all that Christ did and all that Christ taught and his work and his death and resurrection, and that they would be witnesses, they would bear witness to the work of Christ, starting in Jerusalem, which is where they lived, and going out to Judea and Samaria, to the surrounding regions, and all the way to the end of the earth. Then we saw in Acts chapter 2, we saw the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, um, where uh, like tongues of fire came and people began to speak in different languages and many who gathered from all different parts of 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 the of the world came and heard the works of God spoken in their own language and it was there that there was this new movement um, in the plans and purposes of God through now this church of those who have uh, placed their faith in Jesus And we've seen then from there that the gospel began to go out. This message of Jesus began to go out in Jerusalem. And then there was a a man named Stephen who was preaching. And then he, uh, the religious leaders, um, stoned him to death. And after that, there was, uh, because of the persecution, the, the Jews in Jerusalem were scattered. Except for the apostles, the leaders stayed in Jerusalem, but all the other believers were were scattered. And then as they scattered, they began to take this message to the places where they ended up. And uh, we saw that the gospel then moved out of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas of Samaria. We know there was a man named Philip who uh, took the gospel to Samaria. And then it went to all of Judea. And uh, we concluded before the summer um, uh, that the the gospel eventually made its way to uh, this Roman outposts, this large strategic city called Antioch, which was a very diverse city. And we saw that the gospel was there and that Barnabas and Saul came and taught the believers there and stayed there for a year. 
And that was where we left off. Where we saw that the gospel has now gone all the way out to the, the region of Judea. And then that's where we stopped. And then today we will pick up and see this last major chapter of the book section corresponding to that last major section of Acts 1-8, which is now the gospel going now truly to the ends of the earth. So that's where we are today. We are in uh, Acts chapter 13 and 14. It's a little bit of a lengthy section. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read portions of it uh, to help us get a little bit of a taste of this narrative. So if you have your Bibles, if you could turn with me. um, We're going to start in um, Acts chapter 13, verse 1. And then I'm going to skip and just read um, uh, a few sections um, during these two chapters. So Acts chapter 13, verse 1. It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I want to skip now to Acts 14 here. And now... At Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the prince and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. 
But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then concluding in verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that had been fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Today what I want to talk about is how the gospel transforms us from being saved to being sent. That the work of the gospel is first a work of God being done in us. But then it becomes a work of God being done through us. And in that process the church serves as a mission sending base, which equips those that the Holy Spirit chooses to send out as missionaries of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And today I want to talk about how we are all being continually transformed from being saved to being sent, and how the church plays the strategic role as the equipping sending base by which the Holy Spirit then sends us out into the world with the gospel. I want to talk about this here, how the gospel transforms us from being saved to being sent. This is a continuum. This is a package. This is a promise that God through the gospel saves us and then God through the gospel transforms us so that he can send us. God saves us so that he can send us. This is an unbreakable chain. You don't receive the gospel that saves and then opt out of being sent. That God's purpose all along is for all believers to be saved by the power of the gospel and then be sent with the power of the gospel to the ends of the earth, bearing witness to Christ. It is this that the church aims to do in our discipleship and in our equipping. Knowing this, then the church then has to invest in each one of you to equip you to be in a place where you're ready when God calls. That you can go when God sends you. There is no child of God who is saved who is not sent. 
And so I want to challenge each of you here that if you have been saved by the work of Christ, that you claim to be a follower of Jesus, God is sending you. He is sending you. There is no later. There is no, I have to get to a certain stage. When God saved you, he sent you. It's just a matter of, are you aware that this is what God is doing in your life? And are you taking advantage of the purpose of your salvation? To bring him glory so that he can send you to proclaim the work of Christ here and to the ends of the earth. If you know that, then how are you taking advantage of the church equipping you so that when God calls, you are able to go? This section in 13 and 14 is marked out because it's bookended by this one church that got this, a church at Antioch that serves as an, as an awesome model and example of what us at W and all churches should strive to be, a truly sending and missional church that sees the, the reality of the gospel which has saved them and the reality of the gospel that now sends them. Like they get this, they, they make this a part of their DNA and God used the church at Antioch to play a critical role in the advancement of the gospel. So what I want to look at today is I want to look at this church and I want to look at specifically who was first sent out by this church. So I want to look at three things today. Three things, and we're also going to see that in the church, in this process of sending, we see an emphasis here in Acts on the role of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is a very prominent agent in this work of sending people out of churches with the gospel. So we're going to look at three things revolving around the role of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at three things today. First, we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit sends out missionaries of the gospel. The Holy Spirit sends out missionaries of the gospel. Second, the Holy Spirit defends the ministry of the gospel. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit extends the reach of the gospel. So we're going to look how the Holy Spirit sends out missionaries of the gospel, how the Holy Spirit defends the ministry of the gospel, and then lastly, the Holy Spirit extends the reach of the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, in the beginning, we see here that this church in Antioch, and it's mentioned this group of leaders, these groups of prophets and teachers um, who are identified here, and out of which, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and we also assume in prayer, the Holy Spirit said to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, two among the prominent teachers and leaders of that community, to send them out, to set them apart for the work to which I have called them. And they responded in obedience by fasting and praying. They laid their hands on them and then they commissioned them off. Now I want to give a little bit of background on this church of Antioch to help us understand just how significant and strategic this, this stage of the narrative here in Acts and the history of the church is. Antioch at this time was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world, only behind Rome and Alexandria. It was the capital of Syria. And it was very strategic because it served as a crossroads. And it had major highways that extended in all directions. And so because of that, Antioch was both a cosmopolitan city and it was very commercial. There were residents from all these surrounding areas that all moved into Antioch. And this was a bustling city. And because of the diversity of all the backgrounds and ethnicities, it was also very pluralistic and very idolatrous. Now, I love this quote that somebody said about Antioch. This person said, there's no more appropriate place 
No more appropriate place could be imagined, either as a venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. Antioch was chosen by God because it was truly diverse. It represented all the nations gathered in Antioch. And so the work of the gospel in establishing a church in Antioch, it made sense that Antioch would now be the new frontier outpost for the gospel going out now to the Gentile world. Up until this time, Jerusalem was the prominent church. That was where the leadership resided. And all the initial work of the gospel was from Jerusalem. And all the expanse of the gospel up until this point was all based on persecution, right? The persecution scattered the believers. And then the believers had to then bring the gospel because they were forced to leave Jerusalem. But this is the first time in which a church strategically sets apart and calls and sends out missionaries to go into unreached parts of the Gentile world. This is the model by which all churches since have now modeled this priority and this pattern of equipping and sending out missionaries of the gospel. So there's a couple things that I want to point out here that I want us to observe about what we see, about how the Holy Spirit sends out missionaries of the gospel. First, from this first section here, the Holy Spirit sends out of a local church. The most strategic outpost in all communities for the gospel are local churches. The local churches are the sending, equipping base. It is the place in which people are built up, people are sent out. We are a, a, the way that we live life together is a model to the world outside of what the power of Christ does. And as people go out, they go out with the support and the commissioning of a local church to do the work that God has called them. So the Holy Spirit always sends out of a local church. Again, the local church is the equipping and sending base for God's global missions plan. Secondly, I believe that all the believers in Antioch were being equipped for missions even before they were even sent. I believe that the the listing of these prophets and teachers were to highlight that there was this ongoing work where there were leaders who were instructing people on the God. They were teaching the word of God. They were training people to understand the work of Christ and the gospel and changing them and was equipping them to understand this vision that, 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 that God intends to use them to go out into all the parts of the world, even to places where there is no church, places where the gospel has not been preached. And I think that they were teaching over years these believers to understand their, their discipleship in, in that way. And so I, I, I think that they were all being equipped even before they were even being sent out. Three, we see here that the Holy Spirit set apart some. The Holy Spirit then set apart some for a work that he prepared for them, an assignment. Fourth, we see that the church then commissioned them and sent them off, blessed them, prayed for them, and then sent them to the work that God has called them to. And then lastly, we see that those who are sent out return to give a report to encourage the church. We see here a pattern of the Holy Spirit sending out of a local church. Again, we see that all of us are to be taught and equipped to understand the gospel, how to handle the gospel, how to apply the gospel, how to see God working the the fruit and the power of the gospel in our lives, and to prepare us to then be sent out with the gospel. All of us, all of us are, are, are being equipped for that purpose. But out of all of us, The Holy Spirit is going to set apart some. 
to go to unreached peoples, to go to places of this world where the gospel is not preached, where there are not, no, where there are not churches. And God will set apart some to send to those places for that task. And when God begins to reveal and to uh, uh, show who he has been set apart, we then commission, we support, we pray, and then we, we send them off with the blessing and support of the church. And we expect that all that we send will return periodically after a season to share and to report back and to encourage us about what God has done. This is the pattern. And this is what we need to all strive for so that our church can be a true sending church after this model of Antioch. So the first thing we see is that the Holy Spirit sends out missionaries of the gospel. But the second thing that I want to see here through the rest of this section 13 and 14 is that the Holy Spirit, after the Holy Spirit sends out missionaries of the gospel, when they go out, the Holy Spirit defends the ministry of the gospel. This is, this is one of the most powerful, comforting, empowering truths for those that God sends is that when the Holy Spirit sends, he defends. The work that he calls us to, he defends that work. He defends the ministry of the gospel done by missionaries of the gospel. There's a couple things that I want to see here. Well, two things. First, the Holy Spirit defends the work of the gospel. The Holy Spirit defends the work of the gospel. The gospel continues to go forth even in the face of opposition. It may not be very long as you go out that you are faced with opposition. That's something that Jesus himself promised you, that in this world you will face much tribulation. If they hated me, they will hate you, that this is not a message that goes well with people. But the gospel cannot be contained or constrained. The Holy Spirit unleashes the gospel to produce the fruit of God's purposes. Moving through this narrative, we see at every stop there is opposition. First, at Cyprus, when Paul and Barnabas go in Cyprus, there is this leader, this proconsul, Sergius Paulus, this very influential leader who was open and he wanted to hear the word of God. So he calls Saul, Paul, and Barnabas to, to declare them, preach to him. But immediately there was opposition. There was a court sorcerer, magician named Bar-Jesus, which literally means son of God, but Paul calls him the son of the devil. And he saw this as a threat, so he opposed them. He tried to discredit Paul and Barnabas in front of this proconsul. And then Paul, it says, full of the Holy Spirit, he rebukes this magician and causes him to go blind. And at that, the proconsul believed and was astonished at the teaching of the word. So here's the first example where the gospel is going forth, the gospel is being preached, there's opposition, and God orchestrates, the Holy Spirit works so that the gospel continues to go and bear fruit, even in the face of opposition. Going on in chapter 13, they go on to Pisidian Antioch. This is a different Antioch. This isn't the Antioch that they started in. That's in Syria. This is an Antioch that's in southern Turkey. So they go to this place called Pisidian Antioch. And there God, Paul preaches to the Jewish crowd. He gives this great sermon in which he defends the gospel. And he calls them to believe in Christ as the Messiah who, who died and rose again. To give forgiveness for those who repent and trust in him for salvation. But again, this stirred up opposition among some of the Jews. He tried to discredit them. They tried to plot to harm them. 
But despite that, the Gentiles rejoiced at the hearing of the word. And many believed, and the gospel spread throughout the region. So again, in Pisidian Antioch, like in Cyprus, they're preaching, there's opposition, but God is bearing fruit, and the gospel is unleashed, and it's spreading, even in the face of opposition. And then in chapter 14, at Iconium, a great number of Jews and Greeks believed there, but again, the opposition arose, and they tried to kill them, but then Paul and Barnabas escapes. And then finally, we see Paul facing uh, a great persecution at, at Lystra, and then they move on to Derby, and people continue to believe in response to the preaching of the gospel. And so all throughout here, we see in this narrative that as the gospel is being preached, that even in the face of opposition, God defends the ministry of the gospel. The man may try to oppose. People might try to silence the proclamation of the gospel, but the gospel cannot be silenced. Once it's unleashed, once the Holy Spirit sends missionaries out to proclaim the gospel, the Holy Spirit defends then the ministry of that gospel. No one can silence it. No one can contain it. No one can constrain it. Even in the face of great human opposition, God brings his divine plan and power and purposes so the gospel continues to go forth and bear fruit. If you're somebody who is equipped and sent out, this is your greatest comfort and hope, knowing that it doesn't matter what happens to me, the message of the gospel will continue to go forth. And that's what we see in the lives of Paul and Barnabas. So first, the Holy Spirit defends the work of the gospel. But secondly... The Holy Spirit defends the workers of the gospel. Now, I want to say something here. When I say that the Holy Spirit defends the workers of the gospel, what I, what I don't want to say is that God is always going to defend us physically. He may not always defend us physically. That's not the promise that we hold on to. But I believe that what he does promise to do is I believe that God promises to defend us spiritually he will continue to give us a faith that perseveres in the face of adversity for the sake of the gospel so that we can finish the work that he has given us in acts chapter 14 19 in lystra paul god did defend him physically in some of the other places rescued him he got word of people a plot and he was able to escape but in lystra that didn't happen at Lystra, God didn't physically rescue him. In fact, in Lystra, he was dragged out of the city, he was stoned, and he was left for dead outside the city. Paul was not in good shape, okay? If you have people throw rocks at you for a long time to the point where they think you're dead, you're, you're, you're not in good shape. Like, you're in bad shape. God did not defend Paul and Lystra physically. But man, God did something greater in Paul. Because it says in 14 in Lystra that when he got up, the disciples got, picked him up. And you would think, you would think that at this point where they were geographically, that after he got stoned almost to death in Lystra, that Paul and Barnabas would have said, you know what? I think this is about time. We finished. Let's just go a little bit further east, catch a boat, and go back to Antioch. Because, like, I can barely walk. Like, I am so bruised. I am so bloodied. Like, I need time to heal. Like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Look, let's just count our lot. We had a good run, Barnabas. We've already traveled 
almost like a thousand miles on, and, 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 and we saw God do amazing things. Hey, let's just, let's just wrap it up here. But that's not what they did. It is almost unimaginable what they actually did. After Paul was stoned to the point of death, he gets up and him and Barnabas actually go back to Lystra. They go back into the place that just stoned him. And they go back and retrace every single city that they were in and spent additional time so that they could strengthen all the churches and appoint leaders and, and continue to teach the gospel and disciple the new believers. Paul probably could barely walk. And he walked hundreds and hundreds of miles on foot, back, backtracked all the way back around before they eventually went back to Antioch. See, God doesn't promise to defend us spiritually. He doesn't promise us that he's going to remove us from all the physical harm and the ridicule and the threats. Because God knows that that's not the greatest thing that will sustain us. Walking out of a ministry of the gospel unscathed physically is not the greatest thing. It's walking out of a ministry of the gospel being faithful and maybe being reviled and maybe being beaten. And having a faith in God and a love for the gospel that burns brighter than ever. More, more passionate, more devoted, more zealous for the work that God has given them. That is even more precious. And that's what Paul and Barnabas got. Even though they suffered and were beaten, Paul was revived by God because God defended him in his faith and in his love for the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he will boast ever more in his weakness because when he is weak, God is strong. When he's afflicted, when he's persecuted, when he's beaten, and when he feels physically and emotionally weak, he knows that at that point the grace of God is sufficient and God's power can be manifested ever more greatly even in his weakened state. You don't get that by yourself. You don't get that by living a comfortable life. Let me say that again. You don't say those words, living a comfortable life. If all you want is comfort and ease as a Christian, you can't say 2 Corinthians 11. You can't declare that. Because when are you weak? When do you allow God to reveal your weakness so that he can be strong? If everything, your most important value is to be comfortable and safe. But when you step out in faith and when God sends you and you're faithful to that work, you will experience and you will receive something infinitely greater. A faith that has been refined and comes out as a persevering faith that will run this race to the end. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 12, I'm going to read this for you real quick. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 12, Paul recounts to Timothy about what he experienced in these cities. And he says this, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now I read this and I'm like, 
Did God really rescue him from all of them? Well, in one sense he did because Paul didn't die from what he experienced. But I, th- I think there's something deeper here. I don't think Paul's just saying that I endured because like I was beaten to the point of death, but I never died. Oh, so praise God, God rescued me. No, I think, I think Paul also is, Paul rescued my faith. He kept my faith strong. Even though I suffered, God defended my faith and belief in the gospel. And for that, I endured. And for that, God rescued me. He saved me because he preserved my faith. Not just he preserved unscathed physically. This is what God does in promises to defend those who go out and are sent to preach the gospel to the most difficult of peoples and the most difficult of places. Just a few months ago, I had an opportunity to take a team to go, to go back to Turkey. It's been my third trip in five years. And when we were there, we continued a ministry that we were partnered with a local church there and going out onto the streets and passing out digitized copies of the Bible in Farsi to Iranian tourists. And uh, when, we, when we went, there was a team of people who go out two or three times a week on the streets to hand out these cards to tourists. And when we got there, the, the leader of this ministry was just an amazing evangelist. He's an Iranian. He was a little bit of an older gentleman. And I mean, he was, the, some of us who got to go out with him were just amazed at just how passionate he was, how charismatic he was. I mean, how, how gifted he was at sharing the gospel. He was fearless. He was bold. He was, he was nurturing. He was gracious. I mean, people were endeared to him. He just had a command and a presence. And it was so powerful in leading people to Christ, his countrymen. And we were amazed at this brother's faith. But one of the things we found out, and we'll call him Sam, was that even before he was a believer, he was going out handing out these SD cards. And his testimony went through a period of time where he wrestled with his faith, but God granted him faith and he became a believer in Jesus as an Iranian. And after that, he started taking trips into Iran. He would take Bibles and he would take these SD cards and he made at least three trips back into Iran so that he could preach and how he could hand out these Bibles so that he could share the gospel um, in, in, his, in his homeland knowing that there were great risks. Well, not long ago, before we were there, Sam was actually imprisoned in Um, in Iran. He was preaching in a park and there was like 150, 200 people gathered around and he's just preaching in the middle of this park in Iran and um, he was arrested and he was detained. And while he was in prison, they took his Bible, but they said he could have a Quran. So he took a Quran and in prison, he just went through his Quran and just highlighted every section that referred to Jesus and he just meditated and he was just did his devotions out of the Quran just on the parts of Jesus. Then he started sharing that with the other inmates. So all the other inmates started asking for Bibles. And at one point, there were like 10 to 15 inmates gathered around. And he tells this, the, 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 our, our support missionary, Jeff, was telling this story about how, you know, in the prison, they have cameras, but they have no audio. So the guards see all these inmates gathered around um, with the Quran, but they don't realize that they actually have somebody in prison teaching about Jesus using the Quran in Iran. So finally, he, his court date comes up to go before the judge. So he stands before the judge, and they tried to get evidence of this charge of him preaching in public. 
So they tried to find the camera footage of the exact moment that he was in the park. And in that exact time he was there, there was no footage. They could not find any footage of him in that park at that time. So they couldn't hold him, so they let him go. When they let him go, they basically told him, hey, renounce your passport and just flee as a refugee, knowing that you can never come back to Iran. And he says, no, I'm not giving up my passport. And, uh, and so he appealed. They said, we're not going to let you go until you give your, surrender your passport and you can never come back. And he says, no. So he appealed to some relatives who were very influential in the government, and eventually they let him go, and, and so he keep his passport. And so he goes back to Turkey, and here is a brother who has suffered, who has been imprisoned. And I imagine being imprisoned in Iran is not a pleasant thing, okay? This is no, this is no minimal security where, you know, he's, he's, it's like living in like a, like a hotel or something. I mean, he, this, I'm sure he had some very unpleasant experiences. But he would not give up his passport because he would not want to give up going back. He wants to go back. Knowing what he experienced, he says, I don't want to give up my passport because I want to go back. There's still work to be done. The people in Iran need to still get the scriptures. They need to hear the gospel, and I'm going back. Here is a brother who God did not defend physically all the time. But God defended a, a faith and a fervor and a zeal for the gospel that has spurred him on at great cost to continue to finish the work that God has called for him. And he's not deterred. He wants to go back. Like Paul went back. Like Barnabas went back. Because there was work that was unfinished. God defends the ministry of the gospel. When he gives you an assignment, he will defend it getting done. And you will trust him in that. The last thing, the Holy Spirit sends out missionaries of the gospel. The Holy Spirit defends the ministry of the gospel. And finally, the Holy Spirit extends the reach of the gospel. And I'll just close here. When they come back, they reported back all that... God had done to complete the work. And it must have brought so much excitement and encouragement to the church at Antioch. That God has opened a door for the Gentiles. The gospel has gone out in 10 years. There were places that these churches were planted that there was no gospel presence prior to Paul's missionary journey. There were no churches. And in 10 years, there were churches and gospel outposts in all of these cities and expanding outwards. Like Paul and Barnabas brought the gospel to regions where there was no gospel. There were no churches. And it is an exciting thing to see God working to expand the reach of the gospel. My application for us is get equipped. In light of the purpose of being saved to be sent, in light of the church's role to equip, my application and my challenge is to get equipped. No one knows when God is going to call you to send you into the work he's assigned. None of you can say, not me. Nobody knows who's going to be the next Saul and Barnabas. Nobody knows who's going to be sent out. You cannot say that you know that's not going to be me. You don't know. I don't know. Only the Holy Spirit knows who he is going to call out. It could be any one of you to go to a place where there is no church, there is no gospel. You cannot opt out of that. If the Holy Spirit calls you, God, you, you go. That's his authority, and that is our responsibility 
to be ready when he calls. Are you ready? When God calls, will you be ready? How are you being equipped so that when God calls, you can go and you can, you can be sent? This is not an option. This is not something that any of us can say, not for me. It is something that all of us embrace as part of the amazing salvation that we have in Jesus because the gospel saves us so that the gospel can send us. Let me pray as we prepare for the communion table. Father, I just thank you for these words and I pray that as we come to the table that we would meditate on your love demonstrated in the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection to set us free from the power of sin and death, not so that we could then live lives as our own master, but that we could live lives free to serve an even greater master, Jesus Christ, and serve his purposes. And so God, as we reflect and meditate on the table, I pray that you would stir our hearts to thank you and to praise you for our salvation and to have a heart that is more open and willing to be sent out to declare this gospel to the ends of the earth. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.